This Ask an Expert conversation is brought to you by Henley Business Radio. So I came to South Africa the very first time when I was 19. And so that was my wake-up call to Southern Africa. There's a story called Boots on Gravel, which covers that story. How it is that this kid who was 18 did voluntary service overseas Mm -hmm. at a missionary school in Zambia, and which was very relaxed in terms of relationships between different staff members from different countries, different races, different religions. And then I got off the plane in at what was then Jan Smuts Airport, and somebody grabbed my shoulder and said, no, you don't go to that toilet. That's the wrong toilet. Really? That and was the thing? then I went to Park Station to get a train to Durban, and I'm used to seeing first class and second class. I wasn't used to seeing whites, non-whites. So I had like a month of trauma, and that was the beginning of my engagement with anti-apartheid and Southern Africa and how I came to meet a South African and go to work in Mozambique. Well, that's a really interesting story. Well, we're going to unpack that. <laughs> I'm talking to Helena Dolny. She's the author of Before, Forever, After, a wonderful book about living and the next questions about dying. I'm John Foster Pedley, Dean of Henley Business School, and this is Henley Business Radio. And you can follow us on hashtag AskAnExpert. I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to you, Helena. Apart from the fact that you're an excellent coach and you're doing a lot of coaching work, you've got an extraordinary history, and I'd really like to unpack that a bit. I'm sitting in front of you with your lovely pink jersey and your pearls and your beautiful smile, and I'm looking forward to a fascinating interview, learning about what you're doing and amazing things you've got to share with us about the book you've written. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. You are apparently an alumnus of university that owns us, University of Reading. What's that about? I am an alumnus of Reading. And the reason I went to Reading is because of South Africa. No, I was going to study literature and philosophy. And then after my month of trauma in South Africa, I thought I'd like to come back to Africa. But I'm not sure that, you know, kind of philosophy and literature is going to change the world. I want to do something more practical. I'd been in a rural area in Zambia and shared a house with an agriculturalist Mm -hmm. who taught agricultural science. My sciences were the same as the arts when I was at school. So left brain, right brain, fairly even. And both my parents came from farming families. So I got off the boat in In Southampton. No, no, no. My mom's Czech and my father's Polish. They were... World War II refugees. They were displaced persons at the end of the war. I so see. And then they moved to England. And, England yeah. recruited labor. England I was remember, short yes. of labor. So they mm. were offered free boat passages and met in the north of England. So I'm a first generation immigrant who didn't know any English people until I was an adult because I was Catholic. And when you're Catholic, you go to Catholic school. And who do you meet at Catholic school? You meet Italians and Irish and Eastern Europeans. So isn't it amazing? You can grow up in England and never meet an English person. I never thought about that. I grew up in England and only met English people. So that's a totally different upbringing. We obviously have different religions. <laughs> Certainly do. I was a good Church of England boy. Mm. Public schools in England, yeah. So I arrived at Southampton, having sailed on the Windsor Castle from Cape Town to Southampton, having finished my voluntary service overseas at a mission school in Zambia. And I went to the VSO offices and Mm. said, I I don't want to go to university and study philosophy and literature. I'd like to do something more practical. 
And they immediately phoned up the Reading's admission and they said, it's Reading or Newcastle? And I said, which has the better overseas development courses? And they said, that name goes to Reading. So I got on a train and went to Reading. Well, that was very serious of you. If I'd been doing it that age, I was thinking, which has got the most fascinating social life? The nearest to London. Ah, but I had a boyfriend at Oxford. Oh, well, that explains Uh everything. So Reading's not that far from Oxford. So you did agriculture. (laughs) You completed, no doubt, well, because you seem to do everything pretty well, as far as I can gather. economics. They said, don't do agriculture. You're a Mm. girl. Do agricultural (laughs) economics. So that's what I did. And then I fell in love with my husband, who was from Johannesburg, Ed mm-hmm. Whitley. And he, I started doing voluntary work with Committee for Freedom for Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau in my final year of being a student. And Mozambique became independent in 1975. And in 1976, we flew to Maputo and I lived there for 10 years. I worked at the Ministry of Agriculture, and then I taught at the university, and then I worked for a Canadian aid organization. And so you learned Portuguese in, in the process, did you? Eu falo português muito bem. I have no idea. I can respond okay, in French. I speak Portuguese really well. I had to. I walked into the Ministry of Agriculture, and no one spoke English mm. in the unit where I was working. So I went to language school in the evenings and read newspapers, and it took about four months before I could make any contribution in the workplace. So it was of necessity I had to learn Portuguese. And I'm an experiential learner, so actually Mm. immersion in language is Mm. the best way for me to learn. And so after 10 years there, okay, so you were with your Mm. husband at the time working in... I worked in cooperatives at the beginning. I worked with agricultural cooperatives. And then, as I said, I taught, and then I learnt about what it's like to run a team and a $2 million aid organization and have 57 people who are working on different projects in the country. But at the end of 10 years, the Inkamati Accord had happened, and Mm. South Africans were being asked to leave Mozambique. My boss, Ruth First, had been blown up at work in 1982 and five years later I married her widow and went to live with him in Lusaka and that was Joe Slovo I was Joe Slovo and I thought that he well I knew that he was on the assassins list so what would I do would which would mean that wherever I was I would want to be doing Mm. what I wanted to do because he might not be around and I decided to do a PhD on land reform in South Africa. So it was 1986, it was a state of emergency here. The writing was on the wall, it really was on the wall. And it wasn't was it? gonna be very long before people were gonna leave Robben mm. Island and mm. before there was gonna be the beginning of a seriously democratic process. So you really lived in this sort of activist environments, trying to generate change in South Africa and create social change, equality. And you were living in that for a number of years in a place where you were under physical threat of your own. I mean, how was that for you? I get the immediacy of living for the moment and doing what you have to do. But how did that feel, looking at the apartheid government from a distance? I think there are hard things, and I think there are some really valuable things. So on the hard things, 
the years that I was in Lusaka, my kids were in Bulawayo mm. because I thought it was too dangerous for them mm. to be living with us. Mm. So they schooled in Bulawayo, and luckily, because I was studying, I could go backwards and forwards quite mm. often, but saw them mostly in the holidays. The, the other side is that you can't take life for granted, so you're always questioning, what is the life that I'm living, and is it worth living, and yeah, it really puts your life on the line as mm. to how you want to be living it. So I think that's quite precious, and even now, whilst danger is gone I try and remember that that made living very worthwhile and tenuous so the link between the immediacy <laughs> of dying perhaps and the immediacy of living made it somehow yeah. stronger and That's, the irony yeah. was that in the end Joe got cancer he, mm. so he didn't die with an assassin's bullet he had four years of mm. multiple myeloma and mm. that was a real learning was to live with somebody who had a terminal illness um, and a discovery because in part that whole beginning of my life of death being a constant and then living with somebody with a terminal illness and then the year after Joe died three friends all died one after the other and I discovered that I had a gift which was that I sit very well with dying people mm -hmm. And that made me later decide to do my hospice training and training in the U.S. in San Francisco with an esoteric group called School of Lost Borders who do training on rites of passage guides. And but not only did you live through that, that life and death in, in your, your close family, you're also at the center of things as well because by then Joe had become a minister. He became in, minister of housing. Yeah. And you'd also had a stellar career in your own right as well. By that, you were director of the Standard Bank Agricultural Bank, is that right? I was CEO of the Land Bank. That's yeah. one of the things that was... Um, when democracy happened in those first few months, uh, President Mandela decided that rural finance should be looked at, mm. that finance hadn't gone to black people in the country. So he set up something called the Strauss Commission, Conrad Strauss, who used to head up Standard Bank, was the head of it, and I was one of 10 commissioners. And so that was my segue from land reform policy work into finance. And then I became, when ministers were appointed and Joe had died, I became the advisor to the Minister of Agriculture which I have to say was a fun job. It's like troubleshooting. You get sent to Tsitsikama and you, you wear the robes, you know, that you're acting on behalf of the minister and you are able to problem solve. It's, it's a wonderful job. And you've got no direct reports. So then I went from that wonderful, easy job to somebody saying, it's about time you got a proper job. And the CEO of the Land Bank is retiring after 47 years of being there. He's turning 65 and he's retiring. And that job is becoming vacant and we think you should apply for it. Mm. So suddenly I found myself as CEO of the Land Bank and my exco team were all Africana men. The first one to 69 positions in the bank were white Africana men. 
position 70. Was well, not one to six, not, not one to 69, sort of two to two 69. Two to 69 yeah. once, once I was yeah. there. And then there was a head of admin who was number 70, <laughs> white Afrikaner female. And a head of uniforms. I had a uniform. I wish the listeners could see your face now because you're just <laughs> laughing. You're twinkling your eye about this. It's extraordinary. It must have been an amazing time. But it was great. Um, like there was um, an elderly man called Dr. Yapi Jacobs, who mm. was a member of the Bruderbond mm. and who people thought would be the first person that I would exit. And instead, he and I both wanted the same thing. He did not want me to be rash and do anything that would destroy the institution. And he respected the change had to happen. And so he wanted my success. And I wanted his institutional memory. Mm. I didn't know about treasury and dealing rooms. So to have somebody of his caliber and his experience and his knowledge, and I knew was on the lookout. He was a second pair of eyes. And that really made a difference in the bank. When people saw the two of us working together, it turned things around. That instead of me being the enemy coming in, mm. I was working with somebody who they had a lot of affection and respect for. And your purpose there was to create what through, through that? So that the work? Land Bank, which started in, twin, in 1912, had never done a single loan ever to a black African person. Never done a single loan ever to a black African person. That requires some thought. Okay. So it was designing new products mm. and institutional transformation. One wanted a bank where the executive of the bank would be more reflective of the country that we live in. Mm. So I hired the first black Exco members in the three years that I was there. We could talk about this forever, but there's a book sitting in front of me. Okay. There's another book called Banking on Change. And oh, Banking on Change. Banking on Change, because that's what I was doing. I'd actually, in the Strauss Commission, I had a minority position that the land bank should be nationalized mm. and we should, it should be sold to the co-ops and mm. we should start something new rather than trying to transform something that was so embedded and traditional. So Banking on Change is a story of the land bank. So that was my second book. And then a couple of years ago, I did a book on team coaching. In fact, you were going to coach me on my team. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. That's interesting. And now there's Before Forever After, which is the labor of love. So before we get into Before Ever After for a moment, just you're doing quite a lot of coaching. You're a popular coach. And I have to say from the work you're doing here at Henley, you're extremely effective. And thank you for doing that. But what took you from being in that stellar position into coaching? There's a, there's a life transition hidden behind that, I suspect. I enjoyed the loan bank. I enjoyed the designing of new products. I enjoyed the institutional transformation. I loved the review of processes. And I found the business part much easier than the human being part. Mm. We made money at the bank. When I got there, I kind of said, how do you make money? <laughs> and people couldn't tell me. But people must have thought the bank was going to fall apart when you no, suddenly came No, when in, we yeah? did the number crunching, I said, okay, mm. let's crunch some numbers. Mm. And when we did the number crunching, money was made on wholesale and it subsidized the retail. Mm. And that was the first time people really looked at the spreadsheets and said, this is how the money works in the bank. And I said, okay, we can play with the retail stuff. So we made money. 
and some of the new products really worked well, and it was fun. The really hard part was human beings. Yeah. What do you mean by human beings? That the management of people. Because uh, here, let's let's just look at this right. You've so, gone into an Africana institution with a long history. You're this white activist woman without a knowledge of banking, but a very clear transformation agenda. That must have been full of challenge for you. I mean, people must have said hard things about this, this institution's <laughs> going to collapse. And how did you deal with that? I think that one of my strengths is that I know what I don't know. Mm. And I find people who do know. So I surrounded my, myself by people who knew more about the things that were critical to know about. Mm. But I also used to say that my advantage is that I've got a fresh eye. And what I found was an institution that was a bit frozen. And one of the things that I do well is listen to people. So I went to a lot of the branches and had meetings where I listened to people. And I found that there was a lot of frustration of people who'd sent in ideas to senior management mm. that had never come to fruition. So one wonderful day when I'd been there about four months, we held an auction. We invited the 24 branch managers to send in all proposals of things that they would like to be different, that they think would be productivity enhancements or better ways of working. And we invited them to the auditorium at the bank and you could stand up and make your case for a change. And then we would take questions of clarification and discussions. It's like a town hall meeting, like a hotler. And we said, okay, well, that's criticism we can deal with, that concern we can address, but basically, do we agree with this idea or not? And then a show of hands, we said, okay, carried forward. And I got emails saying that we achieved more on that day than the bank had achieved in terms of change in the last 10 years. Hmm. And then we did stuff on the well-being of the workplace. It's work that comes from the Traverstock Institute and from the British coal mining industry about looking at the well-being of people in the workplace, about the criteria of satisfactory work and how you organize work. And I would then go to, I remember going to Port Elizabeth and there was a braai in the evening for the land bank branch members and a woman approached me and said, I don't know what it is that you're doing in the bank what I do know and that I want to thank you for is that I have a different husband coming home in the evening, and I appreciate that. Now, I saw earlier when you were talking about your children, you had tears in your eyes about that moment. That's a tough, tough moment. So there's something about you which is deeply emotional, deeply connected, and gets value out of changing people. Am I right? And that seems to me that's what's leading you into coaching. Is that right or not? So my husband says that my talent is to bring out the best in people, mm. that that's what he sees. Changing people, you can't change anybody. They can only change themselves. That's where I begin on my coaching journey. So let's move forward then. I know you're a great coach. I know you've done that work. And you mentioned your husband. Your, your husband now is John Perlman, the radio Celebrity, so, may we say, yeah. <laughs> My husband has different hats. He is celebrating his 10th year of running a not-for-profit NGO called Dreamfields, which does soccer in townships and rural areas for 
primary school. An incredible and, NGO. They create these footballs that don't yeah. inflate. They're, they're wonderful. <laughs> you, they don't get ruined. Yeah. Yes. And then he does the drive home show on Kair FM mm. in the evenings on Current Affairs. And he does media training, and he's about So is he to, training you? Is he coaching you? <laughs> he is. He's a fabulous home Doing coach. Doing a good job so far. Eh? He will be debriefing me on this interview when, when, when it's aired. He'll probably debrief me too, so that's all right. <laughs> and next week, there's a program starts on ENCA called Under the Skin. So he's mm. moving into TV. So it's true. He's a celebrity. He's much better known than I am. If we go shopping together, people recognize him. Not much longer because I've been looking at his Facebook page. And on his Facebook page is page after page after page of promoting <laughs> Helena Dolny's Before Forever After the book. When conversations about living meet questions about dying. Let's talk about that a bit okay. more. What's going on with this? So the reason it's on my husband's social media page is that I'm, I'm being, they're trying to defrost me as a dinosaur and now have a Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> so I am being inducted into the world of social media, but it's slow going. And so I'm, I'm getting some help from my friends. What are you trying to achieve with this book then? What's the work about? So yesterday I was interviewed by a radio journalist, Zingiswa, who said, this book will change lives. Mm. The change in life that I hope will happen is that mortality is the thing that is most difficult for most of us, and it brings us great sadness. And my observation is that we suffer more because of conversations we didn't have. So I'm hoping the book will catalyze people to have conversations. And the book ends with, it has nine themes and there's a set of nine questions. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend in Washington whose father is in his 80s and she took the end of the book, the set of questions, home for a weekend. And they are of African slave descent and the family sat with the questions, and she wrote me an email saying, thank you for the gift. It offered a framework of questions, of conversations that we had as a family, which we never would have had. I'm not sure about whether to get into those questions now or leave it to people to buy the book, which I think they ought to. But this is really interesting because you say that the conversations people don't have is what challenges them. There's something about leadership in this. How would you characterize this book as an act of leadership? So I think there's a lot of leadership coaching about how you lead in the workplace mm -hmm. and how you lead your life. And there's a lot of coaching about giving birth. Mm. I think the bit that's missing is that I think dying is your ultimate act of personal leadership. I thought of that as a title and I kind of thought it might be a turnoff, <laughs> but I truly do believe that the way you choose to die mm. is an act of personal leadership. And I think I admire Archbishop Tutu because mm. he takes that so seriously. My late husband, Joe Slovo, and our departed beloved Madiba, it's not something they got their heads around. Mm. And I think their families and themselves were worse off. So, so what's the nuts. difference between Madiba's passing and what Desmond Tutu is doing and your husband did? What's the key, key difference, do you think, that's going to make dying mm. 
the act of dying something that's a completion and, in a sense, good, rather than something that's just pure sadness and loss. So the book is divided into three themes. The first third are about how is it that you choose to live your life mm -hmm. and whether it's vision quests or what it is that you want in terms of fulfillment and the quality of your relationship. The middle part is the hard part around end-of-life choices and ritual and bereavement. And then the last part says that if you were really serious about the, your mortality and if you were to accept that actually either of us could walk out of here and be in a car accident and mm. be gone, what would readiness to die have meant in your life? In the story about end-of-life choices, there are five, but the first one is somebody who says, give me everything every possible medical intervention that might be available, I'd like to have it. The middle story there of the three choices is, it's enough now. My next breathing crisis, let me go. Mm -hmm. I'm ready to meet my maker. Beautiful elderly man in Vincent Pilotti Hospital, sitting with his daughters and his grandchildren. He says, do not resuscitate. And the third story is, well, let's hurry this up. I've got full-stage cancer, and I'm in a huge amount of pain, and I don't see the point of sitting around here. I'd like to go to Cape Point. I'd like to have my elixir of death as a, le a legally obtained potion. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say goodbye to my loved ones and say goodbye. I do not wish to have palliative care with lots of morphine and lose my sense of consciousness I want to have agency and autonomy and go when I'm ready to go. That's what I call dignity. Mm. So that's the third story. I remember that great poem, I think it was by Roger McGuff, about let me die a young man's death. I can't quote it, but uh, it was a wonderful story about let me go in a tearing mm. car crash full of energy, full of life force, as it were. Interesting. Mm. But those are really interesting stories. It seems like you've built the book on stories. And even listening to you, I feel strangely energized by the thought of these choices about end of life and how it defines your living. Because in a sense, you know, knowing this is going to happen and being fully aware of it and accepting it really does change what you do. And just looking at you, I can see you've got, you shine bravery and courage in what you do. I have to say that. And even writing this book and addressing this is interesting. So what element does courage and bravery play in the book and in people's choices? I think it's self-knowledge mm. that's most important, knowing what's right for you. And the, I end that respecting choices with a quote that says, true love is respecting the choice of others, mm. especially when it's not the choice that you would make. And certainly that's what I've faced in my life, is that I wouldn't necessarily have made the choice that some of the people that I love have made around me. And, and that is what you do when you are the witness of somebody who is dying. Mm. You respect the choice that they're making. And a remarkable lack of selfishness, too, because the challenge is that I want to do X, Y, Z. I deeply believe that you should continue to have medication or you should have the choice to end your life if you want to. And you might want to pass that on to somebody. But the, the selflessness of being able to stand back, understand somebody's choices and work with them is what you say is an act of true love why I'm calling it leadership is that there are quite a few stories where families are conflicted mm. because people did not specify what they wanted. 
you have a mother in Liverpool who says to her three sons, I don't want to be buried, please cremate me. And she thinks that's enough. But the middle son and younger son quarrel about what to do with the ashes. And haven't we all seen that on so many and occasions? The middle yeah. son wants it to be the ashes to be scattered in the Mersey River because that was her roots, was the life around the river and Merseyside. And the other son wants the ashes to go to the Garden of Remembrance. And they get to fisticuffs. They're not speaking to each other. And in the end, the eldest son who has the ashes says, I have here the ashes. If in six months I haven't heard resolution from the two of you, you will both get a package in the British Royal Mail of <laughs> half the ashes. Do what you want with them. Mm. So the more specific you can be, the kinder you are to the loved ones mm. that you leave behind. And that's extraordinarily true. I mean, we've all got stories. When my father died, he made it very clear who was going to get what except for a bunch of things that he hadn't specified. And what we did as three brothers, we put them in the middle of the dining room floor, moved all the tables away, and we just took turns picking them. i never forget that moment. Well. I still got that. My first choice was a leather belt of zero value, you know, but of deep value to me who wore it forever. So, and I really get that. Specifying is an act of leadership. That really frees up your relations. But I'm really interested in the first part of the book, the choices you make for living. What do you talk about in there? So the first five stories begin with two 23-year-olds. Mm -hmm. One 23-year-old gets a diagnosis. It's quite shocking. She's told that she has six months to live. By the time she's telling me the story, she's lived for seven years. But she does talk about what it's like to be 23 mm -hmm. and know that you've got a condition which may curtail your life quite rapidly. And then there's a 33-year-old who's lost a two-year-old child. Mm. and reconfigures her life and talks about what the impact has been of, having, of losing a child. She makes career choices and she talks about how it's changed the relationship with her husband. She talks about how she listens to friends who complain about their husbands leaving wet towels on the bathroom floor. <laughs> she says, you know, the gift of having a child that died and coming through it in a relationship means that you don't sweat that small stuff. Mm. You're going to reserve what you need for the big stuff that's mm. going to hit you. So that's a lovely, lovely story. And the last story is actually about my mother. Mm -hmm. He's lying in bed. She's 88. She's bedridden. And I have been offered a writing scholarship in Italy. And so I've been away for several weeks. I remember this. It yeah. was quite recent, yes. And there was a gift. I was given a gift by a friend who said, I don't want you to worry whilst your mother's away. I will visit your mother every day. So I need keys to her apartment. I need a list of phone numbers. And I will be there. And you must go away and enjoy and focus on writing and not worry. So this friend of mine, he's gay, <laughs> mm. uh, does that. And he's a fabulous cook. So you can imagine my mother, she's 88, she's bedridden, she only puts her teeth in for visitors. She needs soft food, invalid sort of food, mm. and he's Greg Cook. And a few months later, I'm back home and I'm in the Kruger Park away for a week and I phone my mom in the evening, on a Sunday evening. I know she's spoken to her granddaughters 
I know that she's had a visit from this friend. And so I'm asking her about her day. And, and she says, no, Getty came. And I said, oh, did he bring you anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He brought me chocolates. Ah, oh, which ones did he bring? Ah, oh, lint. Oh, those are your favorite. And then she said, you know, you know, he's a good man. He's a good-looking man. But you know, but you know, I, I'm too old. I, I, I'm, I'm too old to start another relationship. <laughs> magic I kind of thought, <laughs> so what gives you joy yeah. and that to me was one of the gifts of the book is mm. that people will hold on to life mm. for as long as they have nuggets of joy mm. and those nuggets of joy can be a phone call mm. a visit a Skype call with your great-grandchildren Life often gets smaller and smaller at the end when mm. you're elderly and you are in a confined space because you're not going on hikes anymore. <laughs> but the, the, the nugget of, of what makes people want to live, and it's that, that essence of joy. And that's why I enjoyed uh, the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu's The Book of Joy. But I could see last year my mother, she, she took a turn and then her eyes weren't focusing. And then she couldn't enjoy those videos that come across on the WhatsApp of her great-grandchildren learning to swim, learning to walk, mm. their first words. And then that was when she was ready to go. So that first part of the book is around purpose and joy. There's a, a guy called Roderick. I think one of his annual bonuses was like seven million rand. <laughs> so, but he left that job. He left that job because he did not have joy at work. Hmm. So that's the first third of the book. And you're getting joy at work. I can see it. Just, I get lots of joy looking at, at you and talking to you. I mean, I'm one so of the privileged of the earth. Hmm. <laughs> but what a gift to be giving, though. Um, to get people to talk about things that we're all mostly scared to talk about or anxious to talk about, but just to understand what's really happening here and how, how death is something to talk about. I mean, in many cultures, we, before how we're living now we probably handle death very very different ways very much more inclusive and conversational and accepting ways of dying but it seems that maybe it's part of our industrialization of crazy life we live we don't do those things and the rituals either because the second book the second part of the book is about rituals isn't it and about mm. what what's that about i think the modernization of world has led to a loss of rituals when I first went to Mozambique, people used to wear black armbands for a, when a certain when there been a bereavement in the family. Mm. So it was really easy to know that maybe you want to be careful around this person that they're in a vulnerable space. When I was a child, people used to close their curtains that there was a death in the family. In Italy, people put sashes on the mm. front door, and a lot of those things have been forgotten. And psychologists are saying that the loss of ritual as a loss of support, they think may be contributing to the increase of mental health issues, hmm. that we discard some of the, I think some of the rituals, you want to discard them. 
you know, there are some pretty unhealthy rituals Don't around Don't go the into world. the Old Testament, yes. Um, and so what I liked about the chapter on rituals is that the at the end I have a conversation with somebody who is uh, non-secular and who is often asked to design a ritual and say, what are the essential components? Hmm. You know, if you're religious and you follow the rituals of your religion, it's, it's easy. You, you're fulfilling what's been passed down to you. But actually, a lot of people are spiritual without being formally religious. In fact, Alan de Botton writes about that. He says that atheists are really annoyed because all the rituals are being co-opted by the religions, and let's have some atheist rituals. It was really interesting yeah. because of the beneficial effect of them. Yes. That middle part is, and I think also bereavement. There's a story of Ajira from Nairobi who's living in the United States. Mm. And there's a call saying her father's died in Nairobi and she goes back for a couple of weeks. When she returns to work, not a single person says sorry for your loss. It's as though there's a lot of denialism of death in America. And one of the places I visited was uh, Boston, and I spoke to Ellen Goodman, who is a co-founder of something called a not-for-profit organization called The Conversation Project. Her father was terminally ill and having what was to be his last mm. birthday. Her mother's birthday gift to her father was a suitcase for the next holiday. So she says that was denialism. That must take the prize for uh. denialism. But on reflection, she said what it denied us was conversation. Mm. We were never able to have those conversations. The and truth of the matter. What was the comfort that mm. was not offered to my father? Mm. Because we all acted as though it was mm. a miracle was going to happen and he was going to carry on living. So those conversations are really important. She found that her mother got Alzheimer's and she was very close to her mother, but she hadn't had the conversations. So how do we as socialized into materialistic, often Western worlds and the sort of way we're living, remove from the rituals, denial of death and dying, how do we recover that capacity to have those conversations that are obviously so good for us all? One of the things I did in the book was talk about Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. Mm -hmm. I began the book with it and I ended the book with it. There are death cafes where people are beginning. So there's a social movement. Mm -hmm. Malcolm Gladwell says that you need the, the mavens, the knowledge experts, you need the salespeople and you need the connectors. And it can happen. There is a place in La Crosse, Wisconsin, where 95% of Adults over the age of 18 have advanced directives. That means they've had a conversation and they've written down what their end-of-life wishes would be. And it began, it's interesting that end-of-life care costs are one-third lower than the national average for a similar socioeconomic group, but longevity is higher because people are having conversations when they're not stressed. Now, wait a minute. I think all stuck. our listeners have pricked up their ears of that. So we can live longer if we talk about death. As yes. you're saying properly. Now, there's That's, a thought. So, and, and you have a case study mm. in La Crosse, Wisconsin. 95% of people over the age of 18 have advanced directives. There is a podcast on Planet Money, which interviews people. There's a 16-year-old. So 
oh, I know what my parents want when, when death is approaching them. And I've already picked out the Bruce Springsteen song that I've told my dad I want to play at his funeral. <laughs> and it's because there was a bioethicist called Bernie Hames in 1985. He was in a kidney dialysis unit. Three people were unconscious. They hadn't said what their end-of-life wishes were. The family were conflicted. As a medical practitioner, ethicist, he was conflicted. Mm. And so he started a convers- he started asking the nurses to have conversations. And decades later, this has been inbuilt into the health system. John Foster Pedley, once upon a time, age 18, comes to see his general practitioner who says, now, John, you might just be out on the town next week and something untoward may happen to you. What is it that you want to have, have done with your organs? And uh, what about if you're on life support? Mm. When is it that it would be right for your family to switch it off? Then John Foster Pedley gets to his 40s and he's got cholesterol problems. And there's another conversation that says, okay, you've got a chronic condition. How is it that we're going to manage this? Mm. And then, you know, things get more serious. And there might be another conversation called final steps. So first steps, next steps, final steps are inbuilt into the health system. That's uh, the way they've done it. And it's, it's, it's remarkable, really, when, when you imagine yourself into that. I mean, most of us have had health issues of one sort or another and had to deal with this. And so when you think, if we'd done that, if I'd done that, how would I feel? And I imagine I'd feel quite liberated in a sense. There's a sense of, okay, I've got that out of the way. Now let's get on with the real stuff. Because a burden of unknown is always sort of psychic weight that sits there and, and diminishes your creativity and possibility. So it's, it's that sort of thing you're saying, is it? Yes. That one of the reasons for the longevity mm. is that people are having the conversations when they're not stressed. Right. So then when the decisions need to be made... They've already done a lot of thinking about mm. it, so it's not causing the same anxiety. So what's my homework? <laughs> <laughs> Work through the nine lots of questions. I'm dying to read them the out, but it'll ruin the book, ruin the book. <laughs> but, you know, my, my husband who lived with the danger yeah. of assassination and whose, whose wife, in fact, was blown up by a letter Brahmin, so it was real for him in his life. There were lots of things that he did mm. about taking care of stuff. And he said, you've got to make these decisions and you've got to make these decisions about being careful, but then you've got to get on with the stuff of living. You can't live in fear. Mm. So sit down, think, reflect, take decisions, write things down, and then get on with the joy of life. But there's a new, there's your husband, an activist, facing death and generating change. And I think in many of our lives these days, whether we talk, depending on our context, we're also facing the same things. We're facing internationally, we've got political changes we want to fight against probably. Very few want to fight for that I know what's happening in the United States at the moment. Here in South Africa, same issues. There's a call to be really brave, isn't there? And there's a worry that if you are brave, then it will be an impact on your life and the life of your children as well. So you must have the same issues. Your children were in Zimbabwe, out of the firing line, as it were. What do we do today under those circumstances? This is off the topic slightly, but, you know, this is is a call for bravery and activism to make a better world for our kids. How do we handle that? I think people have got different capacities Mm. and that we've got to respect that people have different appetite and capacities. 
and that each one of us will choose to do what we can. But it'd be good to think that we are thinking about what we're doing, what we can. But you wouldn't all get to the end of your days and think, well, I never did anything about that, would you? I mean, you've got to feel better saying, I had a go and I stepped up. The icon of the book is a hummingbird. The mm. illustration at the beginning of the book is a hummingbird. And then, yes, it's a symbol of joy, and it's a tiny, tiny bird that weighs two ounces that can fly across continents. But the story quoted in the introduction is of Wangarai Matai, and it's both a Latin American legend as well as an African one, that there's a, a fire in the forest and the animals are at the edge of the forest looking at this fire consuming the forest. And the hummingbird is going backwards and forwards to a river that's away from the fire and bringing a drop of water and going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards with this drops of water onto this fire. And the elephant says, what are you doing that for? Your drops of water, what difference is that going to make? <laughs> And the hummingbird answers, I'm doing what I can. Mm -hmm. And Wangarai's invitation is, that's all we ask of one another is to do the best we can. I love that thought. We're out of time now. I'd like to think that talking about death and talking about dying in the book that you've given actually empowers us in extraordinarily deep ways. And... As through this whole of this interview, your eyes have been shining with joy. You're talking about the hard, harshest subjects in some way, the most difficult ones. But it's a liberation, and let's talk about it, let's plan for it, and let's all step up to do what we know we need to. Thank you very much, Helen Adoli. Thank you. Beautiful interview. Thank, Thank you. you. For more Henley Business Radio podcasts, go to our website, www.henleysa.ac.za.